Today we're going to look at one of the parables of Jesus. We're in a sermon series. We're going to look at different parables each week. And uh, Dave Cook started that sermon series two weeks ago. If you missed his sermon, you can always go and listen to that or any other sermon you miss on our Facebook page at Harrisonville Community Church on Facebook. And Dave did a great job of introducing the parables, what they are, what they're for, and uh, preaching to us a little bit about um, some of the, uh, the parables which talk about our eternal destiny. Today we're going to continue in this sermon series with Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning there, uh, when we purchased our last home, we didn't have any kids and we didn't have any stuff. So we had a, basically a big empty house and uh, we had three bedrooms upstairs and we had, you know, the main floor and all we had was the stuff from our apartment filling this, this big home. And we had all our friends over for a housewarming party and uh, the adults kind of congregated in the kitchen and the dining room and were talking and hanging out and the kids noticed that the upstairs was all empty and that they could run and play. So they did. All the kids ran up there. And, you know, we heard laughing and playing and door slamming and all sorts of things. And at some point during the night, you know, I heard a lot of crying. And so I ran upstairs and I was like, what's going on, you know? And uh, I noticed the doors were shut and everybody was in the bedrooms. And then out in the hallway was one little girl. And she was standing there crying, this cute little blonde girl. Her face was all red, tears coming down her cheeks. And she's just crying as hard as she could cry. And the whole time she's standing there going, quack, quack quack as she's crying. I go, what's wrong? What's the matter? And she just kept saying quack. And so I noticed one of the doors opened and her, her brother peeked out and I said, hey you, what's going on here? Why is your sister crying? And he said, we're playing keep out the quacker. <laughs> what kind of game is that? Look, there's no point to that game at all other than to make somebody feel terrible. And as I was sitting there contemplating that and looking at that crying girl, it reminded me of when I was a kid. In elementary school, we had on their playground, we had this Lincoln Log type cabin come to life. It was huge and you could go inside of it and you could climb all over in there. It was definitely the highlight of the playground, the highlight of recess. And every day I would run during recess to that cabin to try to get in there and play. And every day there'd be some bully there with his team of his posse standing there at the door, and he'd say, nope, you can't come in. I went to that school for five years. I never got to play in that Lincoln Log Cabin. And then it made me think of middle school, and in middle school, all the cool kids would rush to the back of the bus because you're so far away from the bus driver. She couldn't hear you say anything if you're saying anything mean or offensive or making a joke that was off color. She didn't know, and she was so far away you could throw stuff and half the time get away with it because she was too busy way at the front of the bus, and every time I'd get on the bus, I'd try to run to the back of the bus, and even if I got a seat, it wasn't long before some bigger kid came and took me and threw me back to the front. And then in high school, similar things happened. In college, you know, actually, I, I share the distinction of being excluded at almost every level of social interaction, which makes this passage so near and dear to my heart because that's just what people do. We form groups of people that are like us, and then we keep out the quackers. And we organize it around different things. Sometimes it's looks. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's our job, our political views, our race. We have all these different boundaries, and we're comfortable with people who are in as many boundaries of ours as we can find. 
and we love to spend time with them and be kind to them, and then other people, we kind of keep out. And so here we're going to read a story about Jesus' teachings about this, this sinful part of our nature. We're going to read what Jesus teaches to someone who wants to do this. We're going to read this story, and then we're going to ask ourselves, who are we keeping out? Which boundaries are we uncomfortable crossing? And so we're going to begin in chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, him being Jesus. He stood up to put him to the test. Now, Jesus is God come to earth. I don't know if we say that enough, right? Jesus is God. When we're talking about Jesus and reading about Jesus walking the earth, and we see this lawyer come to Jesus and meet him face to face, he's not just meeting a wise person, a, a teacher, an angelic being with other, like, well, this is God himself come to earth, take on flesh. And so the lawyer is standing face to face, whether he knows it or not, with his creator, with God himself. He has an incredible opportunity to speak with God. And what does he do? What does he do? Well, he's come to put God to the test. You see, he's got some things that he thinks, and he's going to see if, he's going to bring those to the Lord and see if he passes. And as we come to church, as we come before the Lord, and before we ask questions to God, we want to know, what is the intention of our heart? You might have heard in kindergarten your teacher say, there are no stupid questions. And she was half right. No question in itself is stupid. But there are some very stupid ways to ask questions. And here the lawyer has come, and he's foolish. This man, he's an he's a educated individual. And here he has come as a complete and total fool. Instead of falling at the Lord's feet and asking to learn from him, he has come to look to teach God a lesson and to see if the Lord will pass. And we want to be a place, we want to be a church where you can ask questions. I had a great conversation with someone from our church this week who's read a ton of the scripture, and we just got to talking. We're talking about all these different verses and revelations and things about the end times and how this verse can fit with that verse or might not. And we've heard this interpretation of this verse and that interpretation of that verse. And actually this verse, we've heard somebody interpret it this way. And we spent an hour and 25 minutes just having fun, talking, wondering how does this work and how does that work? And you know, the church has some orthodox ideas on those things, but it's far from clear. And if we can't come and ask questions and talk it through, then what good is the body of Christ? Right? If we can't bring our questions and say, hey, you know, if I've prayed a prayer of salvation when I'm five and then I fall away from the Lord. Like, did I lose my salvation? Did I gain? And then if I come back, did I gain it? And if I, if I fall away again next week, did I lose it again and back forth? And if we can't come and ask those type of questions and, you know, does, when the Lord returns for the thousand year reign, like, who, who's there at that time? Who, who's he reigning over during those thousand years? And is the church there? Or not? I mean, if we can't ask those questions, then what are we here for? Right? We are here. We're a community that's here to read God's word, interpret God's word, and follow the Lord together. And some other great questions with people talking about marriage and our identities. And the culture says this, and the church says that, and why? And that's how we learn and grow and learn to follow the Lord, is by asking questions. And so we want to be a church where you can ask questions. I read this in the Bible. I don't understand it. I don't understand how this part of the church's teaching fits with that part. 
I don't understand why the culture says this, and they got such good positive slogans, and it seems so good. Why then would the church say that we need to do this over here? And we want to be able to ask those questions and talk with each other. But when we have a question, that's a time for Satan to get involved. Right? Questions can be a great thing that lead us deeper in the Lord, or they can start to be something that Satan takes with our pride and starts working it to use to separate us from the Lord. And we got a question. We don't understand something. And I'm a smart person. So if I don't understand something, then maybe the Lord's wrong. And that's what Satan does to us with this pride that we have. Well, if I read this passage and I don't understand it, there must be something wrong with it. I read in Leviticus, it says, don't cut the corners of your beard. Why would God care about a hairstyle? I'm an expert on Leviticus. And I read that thing and I think that verse is silly. Therefore, God must not know what he's talking about. And we don't know that back then, 3,000 years ago, the worshipers of Moloch, a god which asked them to sacrifice their children to him and burn their children to him, they all cut their beard a certain way to identify themselves as worshipers of this false god. And so when the commandment says, don't cut the corners of your beard, it has nothing to do with the hairstyle. It's that God is trying to teach his people that they're not to sacrifice their children to him or identify as people who do. Everyone should know when they look at you, people of God, that you are not one of those people who will do this ungodly act. God is different. And so there's a lot of questions we can have about the Bible, but there's a lot of questions we can have about a lot of things. But as soon as we start getting our pride in the way and thinking we know more than the Lord, we've got an issue. And there are no stupid questions, but we can ask questions in a very stupid way. And a stupidly asked question intends to dismiss God and his direction. And so when you go through life and you have questions, and you will, we all will. I grew up and the pastor said this, but then I listened to that pastor and he said that. When you have those questions, if you begin asking those questions with the intent to dismiss God in his direction, then you have come to the Lord in a very foolish way. Pridefully, you've come before the Lord in a very foolish way. And so here the lawyer has done just that. He's got a question to the Lord, and he's not asking the Lord to learn from him. What he's actually going to be doing is looking, asking questions in an attempt to dismiss God and his direction and justify himself and his sin. And I've heard so many questions asked this way. I remember the first thing I, I did as a Christian was I got involved with a group of believers at my college and they were leading a Bible study and they asked me to help lead this Bible study and I started having people come to me to ask me questions about stuff. And these kids would come, all these college kids would come asking questions, looking to justify their sin and dismiss God's direction. You tell me I can't do this with my boyfriend or girlfriend, why not? All the professors say it's great. You're telling me I can't do this. Everybody else does this on the weekend and they have a great time. Why would God care about that? Why would God care about what I do in my bedroom? So many questions asked not to learn, not to understand, but to justify what they had already set their hearts on doing. And here's a man who's already set his heart on doing evil. He's a lawyer. And that just doesn't mean that he stands in a courtroom and talks about, you know, uh, here's what it means to have a copyright, and here's when we break those copyrights. And here, The law back then was completely tied to what God's word was and how to interpret it and understand it. That was the law. It was God's law. And so here's a man who spent his life studying 
arguing, talking about God's law. He cares about what God wants, but apparently not in his own life. How ironic. Here's a man who spent his entire life studying, looking to understand, and looking to bring justice according to God's law, and he's got significant ungodliness in his life, which he's looking to justify. And here he comes to put him to the test, see if he can trip him up. This lawyer stands up and he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that is not a small question. It's a big question. Many people come to Jesus in the scripture and ask the same thing. Mark chapter 10, the rich young man comes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has asked this question a variety of times and he doesn't answer it the same way twice. Why not? Make it clear, Jesus. When we think about John 3.16, that's the most clear verse. I remember memorizing that verse as a kid. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but shall inherit eternal life. All we have to do is believe in Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus and we're saved. That's what John says. But then Jesus gives a different answer to the rich young man in Mark 10, and he gives a different answer to this guy right here. Verse 26, Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, no. John 3.16 says, Whosoever believeth in the Lord shall be saved and not perish. Haven't you read that one? No, wait, Jesus says, in verse 20, he says, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. And he actually gives a much different answer to the guy in Mark 10 when he comes to him. He says, What do I need to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Keep the commandments. And are those three different answers? Are those the same answer? Other places in Scripture, as you read the verse, it gives you the idea that you need to be baptized to be saved. And why do all these things, are they different? Well, actually, they're not. They're all synonyms. They actually all look the same. Like John 3.16 says, if we believe in the Lord, then we'll love him. And the flip side, if we love the Lord, we will believe in him. The Lord will not leave anybody behind. We're not used to perfect justice. And so we sit there and we think, what about the person who lives in the middle of Mozambique who's never heard? If they love the Lord, the Lord will find a way to bring the gospel to them through one of us or through a vision in his Holy Spirit. He will not leave them behind. The Lord is perfect in all that he does. No one's going to go to hell on a technicality. I, I got left behind because of this or that or the other thing. The Lord will make sure that everyone who loves him is saved. And if somebody says that they love the Lord and they reject Jesus Christ, if somebody says they love God and they reject Jesus, they don't love him. Jesus says that many times, especially in the book of John. If you know me, you know the Father. If you love me, you'll love the Father. If you love the Father, you'll love me. And so these are not different. It's not different to believe in the Lord and it's not different to love the Lord. When the word believe is used, it doesn't mean like the demons believe or they acknowledge that God exists. If you've come to church thinking that all God wants is for you to acknowledge that God exists, the demons acknowledge that God exists. It's not doing them any good. 
What God wants is your heart. He wants a relationship with you. God loves you. It's not something that we can relate to all that well. I can almost relate to Satan hating me easier than God loving me because this world is hard. It's difficult. I experience a lot of things that I would rather not experience, things that I know aren't the will of God, sin, evil. That's why we sing songs like God is for you, and then we repeat that verse 15 times. It's not because the author of that song wasn't creative enough to come up with different lines. It's because it doesn't come naturally to know that. God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. When it says believe, it's not like he just wants you to, oh yeah, there's a God, he exists. He has a son, his name is Jesus. No, God wants your love because he loves you. And so when it says believe, it's not saying that you just acknowledge God exists. It's that you love him. You respond to his love in return. And that love saves. That's saving love. That type of belief is saving belief. And when we believe that way and when we love that way, we will keep his commandments. And John, again, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We love to think that we can just say we believe and then do whatever we want. It's not the case at all. What we need to do is repent and seek to follow him. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. God is a God of grace. But we can't just reject the Lord's commandments and pretend that we love him. That's not how it works at all. That's why when the rich young man comes in Mark chapter 10, Jesus looks at him, he knows his heart, and he says, you need to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That's what it looks like for that man to believe. That's what it looks like for that man to love the Lord. Now we might say, well, I don't want to. Do I have to give? us?" Well, actually, the Bible commands us to give 10% to the Lord. It's called a tithe. That's what the Lord is looking for. But he sees this man, he sees an idol in his heart. He sees that he loves his money more than the Lord and says, you've got to get rid of that idol. That's what Jesus is telling him. To believe in me, you've got to stop believing in your money. To believe in me, you've got to stop following money. You've got to follow me. To love me, you've got to stop loving your money. It's getting in the way. And so to John 3.16, to Luke 10.28, you have to sell everything that you have. But it's the same answer. Believe in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Love the Lord. Follow the Lord. And so as we're reading, in fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 7, one of my favorite passages, Luke chapter 7, verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven, loves little. She loves much, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Was it her faith or was it her love? It's all the same. It's her relationship with Jesus. She's been made right through the Lord, through her trust, through her belief, through her love, through her following. And so as we're reading the Bible and it says different things, when it says different times that you need to be baptized to be saved, baptism is a synonym for our faith. What baptism is, is we go under the water as a sign that we believe that Jesus Christ's blood has washed away our sins just as that water washes over us as we come out from the water. It's a sign of faith, an object lesson that we believe just as Jesus rose from the grave, just as we rise from the water, we too will rise from the grave. And so baptism is just salvation shorthand. But we know that you don't need to be baptized to be saved because the thief on the cross next to Jesus died and he wasn't baptized. 
But he came to faith on the cross, and Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Now, if we're not baptized, we should probably think about being saved because the thief on the cross was saved, but he was nailed to a cross and couldn't be baptized. And so unless we've got an excuse that that's good, then maybe we should be baptized as well. But when the Bible says baptized, it's just shorthand for our salvation. It's another way. So the Bible's completely consistent as we go through and we ask the Lord how to inherit eternal life. He gives us the same answer every time, but it looks different. Just like when my two-year-old comes to me and asks how to be saved, I give one answer. When my seven-year-old comes to me and asks how to be saved, I give a different answer. When a teenager comes to me and asks to be saved, I give another answer. And when an adult comes to be saved, I give another answer. But it's the same answer. It just looks different for each type of person and where they're at. And so here Jesus gives an answer to this guy. What does it look like to be saved? The guy says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And what matters is love. Another one of my favorite verses, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. It says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love in Christ Jesus. What counts to the Lord is faith working out through love. Our religious rituals, if they're empty, they won't get us anywhere. What we need is faith and love. And so this is the answer that Jesus gives to the lawyer. And the lawyer hears that, but he's got ungodliness in his heart. This man who spent his life studying the word comes to justify his evil intentions. Who knows who he's been trying to keep out? Who knows who he's trying to justify his lack of love for? As someone skilled in the law and someone who's got sin in his heart, he starts looking for a loophole. Ah, oh, yes. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? When uh, about 10 years ago, um, Sarah, we went to visit Sarah in St. Louis and her family, and she grew up in a house in the city that had one bathroom, and she had three brothers and herself and, and her parents, and everybody used this bathroom, and I'm telling you, that thing got a ton of traffic. And of course, your toothbrushes are all in this bathroom, and one day, Sarah comes into the bathroom, she looks down, she sees her toothbrush in the toilet, and she says, who threw my toothbrush in the toilet? And they sat the brothers down one after another. I didn't throw your toothbrush into the toilet. I didn't throw your toothbrush into the toilet. I didn't throw your toothbrush into the toilet. And we go over and over and over, and eventually one of them goes, I didn't throw your toothbrush into the toilet. So I heard that. I knocked it into the toilet, whatever it was. He, seeking to justify himself, said, I didn't throw your toothbrush into the toilet. We all do this. We've had American presidents stand on the stand and say, are you guilty? Well, it depends on what your definition of is is. What are you talking about? Are you three? Anybody can, can do this. Anybody will do this. The other week, uh, I told my kids and my boys to get in bed. I said, get in bed. And they come down 20 minutes later, and the lights are on. They got toys everywhere in their bed. And I said, I told you to get in bed. And they thought they're so smart. And they said, we are in bed. And I said, that's the, fool that's the most foolish answer I've ever heard. 
Who would have thought that I would have meant that when I go, you have to be a fool to think that when I said get in bed that I meant this. I said have some self-respect. You don't look smart at all. This is foolish behavior. I said, the girls got in bed and they were smart enough to know what I meant when I said get in bed. Their lights are off. They're snoring. You guys think you're so smart, but you're absolutely foolish. Keep up with the girls. Come on. Have some self-respect. This guy's a lawyer. He's educated. He's at the top of society. And here he thinks, who is my neighbor? When we ask questions to God, we want to make sure that we think about the intent of our heart because as we come before the Lord, there's two things that we got to remember. Every time we come before the Lord, he is unquestionable. And you can ask him questions, but you can't question him. He's God. You're not. He knows everything. You forgot where your keys are this morning. Who are you to question the Lord? Job loses everything. And he comes before the Lord. And in his incredible suffering. Here's a guy who suffered un- unconscionably. He comes from life. Eventually, he starts questioning the Lord. And the Lord says, who are you to question me? Even to the guy who suffered the most out of anybody. None of us get a free pass and we come to the Lord and start questioning him. God is unquestionable. The other thing is that we are very, very small. God is perfect. I am very flawed. It took me hours and hours and hours to study basic tests in high school to pass them. And I think I'm going to come before the Lord and question him. Not a chance. That's incredibly foolish. And so before we come to the Lord, we want to be able to ask questions, but we want to remember who God is and who we are, and this lawyer's forgotten it. And he's looking for someone who's outside of God's love. I love my neighbor, but I hate this guy. So, Lord, who is my neighbor? He's not the first person to do this. People are hilarious. God, all the way back, what was it, like Leviticus 18, 19, I think, is when God gave us this commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's Old Testament. 1918? One of the two. There it is, 1918. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That saying wasn't new to the Gospels. The people of God had had this for thousands of years, and they interpret it like a bunch of children too. There's many different groups of Jewish people, many different ways to interpret and believe. Of course, there's one thing that God meant, but there's lots of people looking to justify their sin. Churches are not above failing you. Pastors are not above failing you. You want to know why this church believes that way and that church believes this way? And it, well, they're probably looking to justify something that they didn't want to do. And the Jewish people did the same thing. There's a group called the Essenes who literally interpreted this verse that you only lo- loved other members of the Essenes, not even the rest of God's people. And it says, love your neighbor. Like you only love this little group of God's people. You don't even love God's people. They're not even, forget the people who aren't even God's people. Talk about a strict interpretation. Talk about a selfish, sinful interpretation of this verse. So this guy's come before. Who's, who is my neighbor? And he's looking for a loophole in order to justify his mistreatment. And so he starts playing with the words neighbor. And we love to interpret this verse as love those who are in your group. 
Love those who are just like you. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if you love those who are just like you, if you love those who love you, what good is it? So I have to love God and my neighbor. Well, I love God, right? He's great, but my neighbor's a jerk. And so, Lord, who is my neighbor? He lives outside my neighborhood, this guy I don't like. And so when Jesus encounters someone who feels that way, he tells the following story. And he says, Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And so he tells this story. Rather than telling him who his neighbor is, he tells him a story about what it looks like to love other people. And he starts off with a story. It's a very interesting way to tell a story. Because what he does is he starts off with a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's likely a Jewish person, just like the lawyer. One of the people of God. A man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. Now, that was very common back then. It's actually not too uncommon today. Even today, 2,000 years later, it's still a pretty dangerous road. There's a lot of criminals and robbers along the way. So the man is familiar with this type of situation. They strip him. They beat him. They leave him half dead. I'm sure they took his stuff since they're robbers. And now by chance, a priest comes along. This guy's one of the leaders of the people of God, right? He, he brings the people's concerns to the Lord. That's his job. On behalf of the people, he seeks the Lord and his guidance and his directions and his blessings. There's a man on the ground, likely one of his, and he comes by. Surely he's going to help him. Who's my neighbor? Is the guy on the ground his neighbor? Well, of course. And what does he do? You think a godly man? What does a priest do? He spends his whole life, just like the lawyer, seeking God and his will and how to follow him, just like the lawyer. And what does he do? He steps around the other side and he leaves him. What a terrible person. That's sick. And then we have the Levite that comes next. The Levite is a guy who assists the priest in the temple in the worship of God. Well, he's not quite the priest, but he's, you know, more of a regular individual, more of one of the regular folk. Well, maybe he's going to not be such a hypocritical jerk. And he gets to the guy and he does the same thing. And so we're going down the ladder. We started with the priest who's supposed to be super dedicated to the Lord. Then we go to the Levite supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, but has less expectations. And now you think you go to the next level down, which would be just like more of a regular guy. And as the lawyer is listening to this, he's thinking the priest, the Levite, and he'd kind of be more in this next group. 
Stories are told in threes. You know what to expect. You have the first guy who's mean, the second guy who's mean, the third guy, he comes along and he's going to be the hero. And he's in my category. And this guy thinks he's a hero. He's so full of pride. I've been loving to my neighbor. A Jew, I would certainly help that man. Isn't that what you're thinking as I'm talking about the priest and Levite? I'd help that guy. What a terrible person that priest is. What a terrible person that Levite is. I would come along. I'd help him if I came along. And Jesus just setting this guy up. He's already full of pride. Now he's going to become a guy just like me. And he's going to help the guy and save the day. But Jesus skips that wrong on the ladder. He goes, priest, Levite. And goes right to the Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were hated. In fact, Jesus, who knows all, I'm sure looked into this guy's heart and knew that this guy, in his desire to justify who he wasn't going to love, was probably thinking of Samaritans because almost all Jews hated Samaritans deeply. And for sort of good reason, the Samaritans betrayed them and God. Samaritans were people who ended up marrying people who were not the people of God, marrying unbelievers, marrying Gentiles. Pretty soon, their worship was all messed up. They had all sorts of goofy beliefs that they interpreted or incorporated from their wives and husbands who weren't believers. And pretty soon, they did not know God anymore. The Samaritans were people who God had taken out of this world, the Jewish people, and set them apart and said, I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people, and I will teach you about myself. And the Samaritans screwed it up. And now they're confusing everybody because they're saying, you know what, you, these people over here, they worship God this way and their God says this and you know, I kind of like that and we're going to do that in our family and we're going to do that. And pretty soon in John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman and she's trying to worship the Lord and he says, you know what, you worship what you don't know. And he corrects her and sets her on the right path because Samaritans, even if they were trying to worship God, they were so deceived by their history and their past and their people and their rejection of God and his word that they weren't on the right path anymore. And so the Jewish people who are trying to follow the Lord and be this incredibly special people in an entire world, a sea of humanity which did not know the Lord, the Samaritans had biffed it. And so they were bitter. They were resentful. You're making it difficult. And so the Jews hated Samaritans. It's okay to disagree with the Samaritans. We're going to find out it's not okay to hate them. Jews would actually go around the country of the Samaritans just so they didn't have to walk through. In fact, in uh, John, somewhere in John, they called Jesus in John eight forty eight. They hate Samaritans so bad. When Jesus ticks them off and they want to kill Jesus, they call him, "You're a demon possessed Samaritan." They didn't even see demon-possessed for last because Samaritan was really the thing. That's so bad they hated Samaritans. You're, you, Jesus, you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. All the people who hate Jesus, Jesus tell them. And so what does a Samaritan do? Priest, Levite, Samaritan. The Samaritan comes along and he helps the guy on the ground who's likely a Jewish person, a guy who hates him. The guy on the ground probably hates him. And the priest didn't help, and the Levite didn't help, and, and this guy did. That was unexpected. If even that guy, ugh, that guy who can't even, can even read, he had this and he blew it. If even he can help that guy in the ground, well, then how much more should I really help? And so instead of the lawyer being the good guy, Instead, the lawyer is given a challenge. 
You're looking to justify your hatred of people who aren't like you. But look, this guy who's not even one of the people of God, he can be godly to someone who hates him. How much more can you? This lawyer's come to justify his lack of love, and suddenly he's just been compared to the guy he hates and told that even the guy he hates can do this. What's wrong with you? You're supposed to be godly. You study God's law for a living. And so Jesus gives the guy an incredibly challenging story which cuts him down to size, humbles him, and makes him ask, who in my life am I doing this to? And we should think about that ourselves. Who in our life are we looking to justify not loving? He's looking for a loophole to God's love. And instead of telling him who's outside of God's love, he says instead, Here's what it looks like to love other people. Go and do likewise. And the lawyer gets it. He said in verse 37, verse 36, Jesus asked him which one proved to be a neighbor. Verse 37, he gets it. He's probably saying it through clenched teeth. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. There are no loopholes to God's love. There are no loopholes to God's love. And that's very challenging to the lawyer. And I'm telling you, it's really challenging to me too. It's, you know, modern society application, there's a few different ways you can go with this. The analogy would be like if we went, if we're walking around and we see a Christian on the side of the road stranded without gas, maybe they got in a car accident, a fender bender, they're bleeding. The guy, by the way, we just got these Harrisonville Community Church stickers to go on the back of our cars. I just put one on my car the other day. We'll get them to you soon. The pastor who's got the the HCC sticker in his car sees and says, I'm late for whatever, and I got my coffee meeting, and drives around the guy on the side. And then the church secretary, she drives around on the side. And then the guy who's got the coexist bumper sticker on the back with all the different, you know, blue stickers and rainbow stickers and whatever stickers, they see the guy on the side of the road and even though he's got a, you know, Jesus for president sticker in the back of his window, he stops and helps him and gives without any thought of repayment. It pays for the guy's tow truck. Helps him out. The guy who was this guy who stopped on the side of the road? He was, he was responsible 40 years ago for saying we should get the Ten Commandments out of the courtrooms and we should get prayer out of schools. That guy. This is the guy who stopped and helped. And that would probably be the best modern society application just to think about that. Don't you know people like that in your life? I know I do. It challenges me like crazy. We've got an unbelieving uncle who's the nicest guy I've ever met. You can't out-nice this guy. And I think I say, what in the world? Like, what sort of is inside of you? You don't believe in an afterlife. You don't believe you're going to be judged, and yet you're so nice. I think I'm going to answer the Lord for every mean thing, and I can't keep up with you. It's humbling. It's convicting. Why don't I love more like this guy? My neighbor at my last house, I started to get to know him because I wanted to invite him to church, and... And, and share the gospel with him. And I started to get to know him. I tried to be nice to him, and he was out-nicing me two to one. He, was, he hated religion. He hated the topic of God. And yet he was nicer than me. How humbling. Thank God that he has forgiveness, because I need to repent, and I need to do better. 
It's not a question of small significance. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not like I can just exclude people and, and hate people and not love people and expect that I'm going to be saved. It's not what it looks like to be saved. The more I see that I'm not loving, the more I got to say, where is my heart at? I need to seek the Lord. I need to seek the Lord for his forgiveness. I need to seek the Lord for his mercy. I'm reminded that no matter how good I try to be, I'm not going to be anything but dependent completely on him for his mercy in my life. Because no matter how hard I try, I'm still not as nice as even these people who don't believe in God. Now, not everybody. Certainly some people. One of our elders was telling me a story about how he was at a gas station. This guy from the Middle East came up with his family and said, I need help. I need gas. I'm trying to get to Texas and I have no more money. And so one of our elders then paid for him to fill up his tank. And as he's filling up his tank, he said, if I was in your country, if someone who looked like me was in your country and needed gas, would anyone in your country stop and help him? The guy muttered some sort of answer that just definitely not a positive, affirmative, mumbled around. And Christians are different. Christians are different, but we're still sinners. And as I heard the elder tell me that story, I thought, what a wonderful thing that God has done in one of our elders' life, that he cares as much to help somebody else like that. I probably would have driven on by. (laughs) And that's not good. I probably would have seen this person from the Middle East and thought their ideology is anti-Christ. It's anti-freedom. It's anti-free speech. It's anti so many things, and I probably would have drove around him. And the Lord teaches us that that is evil. As godly as I want to be, I've got ungodliness in my heart that I need to repent of. And what would you do? In John chapter 13, 35, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love is not a matter of nationality, Political views, race, legal status, sexual identity, gender preference. Loving people does not mean that we give up God's word. That's the hardest part about it. We think to love people, we've got to make them happy. Absolutely not. We don't have to give up God's word. But we do have to care for them, seek goodwill for them, serve them, love them. One of the most common analogies I've heard as I've heard this passage preached is to race. The Jewish people, they're God's people. They are of a certain ethnicity. This individual has left God's people. He's married other people. He's become, and his descendants, they've become a separated race. Now, the analogy is not their perfect, perfect application, but I think that is a great application. And you won't hear me talk about race very much as I preach in sermons. It's a topic that's incredibly sensitive to talk about. It's a topic that's incredibly difficult to get right. And to speak knowledgeably on every word you say, you've got to explain yourself 10 times because it's such a heated conversation. I don't feel even comfortable talking about race, to be honest. When I was growing up, uh, not being racist meant you followed Martin Luther King. I thought he was great. Now it seems like you sort of need to follow Malcolm X. I don't think he's godly at all. And so the whole thing is just a hot-button issue, and I like to dance around it. I don't like to address it. I don't like to talk about it. It's challenging. But there's definitely an aspect of race here. 
And Christians need to love people who are not their skin color, who are not their culture, who are not their ethnicity. And we're pretty bad at it. Where I came from was incredibly diverse. And yet you had the Hmong church over here. You had the Russian church over there. You had the African-American church over there, the Hispanic church over there. And you had the white church here, 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 and there. And I just remember thinking, that's just so strange. That is an issue. Sunday mornings are oftentimes the most segregated time of the week. Why is that? It's because we don't like people who look different than us. We don't. When I turn on the TV to watch the NBA, do you know who I cheer for? The shortest white guy on the court. (laughs) Every time. It's just who we are, and it's sin. And we need to repent of that and seek the Lord and his Holy Spirit. This stuff does not come naturally. And so if we're able to do it, it's only because we do it supernaturally that God has moved in our life and has given us love for people who are not like us. And we've got an incredible opportunity to show the world the love of the Lord and be known as his disciples. And a lot of times we fail. I know this last couple years, I don't think I've ever hated people as much as I've hated people. It's been, I just, I was caught unaware. I just was, I was unprepared to love people who were this different than I am. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm seeing what's going on. I'm seeing people not, not being willing to stand up for each other's freedoms at all. I'm seeing our cities burn as, as people actually justify the vengeance. And I'm saying, what happened? And then I look at God's word. I hate, I just hate. I see people supporting this. I see people voting for people who support this. And I just, and then I read God's word. And I think, if I hate, then I'm just like them just like them. And God's word is different. We're supposed to love not even those who are just like us. We're supposed to even love our enemies. And as I think about our world today and how divided we are, I think the best analogy for application now is do you love people who vote differently than you? You can disagree, but do you love them? Luke chapter 6, 32 and 36 says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? For even sinners do the same. And if you, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what great is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, just like that Samaritan. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's the kind of love our God has for us. He sent his son to die for us, even when we were yet sinners. And are we able to love those who are different from us? Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And I read that, I'm like, that's wisdom. Boy, it was a lot better when we were following this, a little better in our culture, wasn't it? It was a lot better when we weren't seeing people treated differently for the color of their skin when they committed crimes. It was better when we weren't burning down our cities in response to perceived injustices. It was a lot better when we were loving our enemies rather than taking a lot of vengeance and evil. That was wisdom. I want that back. 
I want that back. And I need to follow God's word. His word is incredibly countercultural. His love is incredibly countercultural. And we've got this incredible opportunity to show that love in a world which doesn't know it. And how are we doing with that? You know, a few years ago, instead of loving, the culture was teaching us to be tolerant. Tolerance and love are miles apart. And I could tell as I sat across from people who were much different than me as they tolerated me. I was usually the one that they were tolerating. It was kind of cute. As they kind of gritted their teeth and said, Hi, how are you doing? And Tolerance and love are miles apart. And the interesting thing is, I haven't heard anybody say anything about being tolerant the last two years. That ended. There is no more encouragement to even be tolerant. At this point, it's cancel. It's cancel with fervor and righteousness. Take a moral stance on the side of the elite and the, and the leader and then cancel anyone who doesn't agree. Unfriend them. Block them from your news feed. Don't like their posts. And that is what our culture does. That's what people who are ungodly do. Christianity is different. If you're following Satan, you want to cut people off. If you're following God, you want to include people who are different. Now, I might have a lot to go on this, but because I'm a Christian, I love talking to unbelievers. I love it. I want to tell you, I want to go out to lunch with them and I want to find out why they believe what they do and what they do about this inconsistency and what they do about that and, and what would they think about this teaching of Jesus. I love talking with unbelievers because I, I know the Lord and I want to share him with others. But when you know and follow Satan, you don't want to share with others. You want to cut them off. And as people who follow the Lord, are we looking to include people who don't, aren't like us? You know, when I was a... Um, when I was in uh, Blaine, one of the things I did to find out people who were like, not like me because I'm a pastor. I spent all my time with Christians. I would do things to actually seek people who weren't like me. I joined a dad's group. And they'd take their kids. These were dads who were stay-at-home dads. They'd take their kids to places and had great conversations. People were completely unlike me. And they wanted to talk to me too. And so it was great. Great way to seek the Lord. And are you doing that? Are you going and crossing boundaries to seek out people who are not like you? because it's incredibly godly to do so. One of the best applications I can think to this is not just people, not just race, not just political views. You know, it's weird. Our culture's gotten so weird. It's like, you kind of feel like you got to go and you got to befriend somebody with a different skin color just for that reason to prove that you're not racist. And you got to go and it's like, hey, you, you have different political views than me. Will you go out to lunch so I feel good that I have friends who are different? Like, it's just this needy thing in us. And just, I feel so awkward about it. One of the things to do is just naturally look around and say, who has God put in my life who is being left behind? Here's a guy on the road who's being left behind. Who in your life is being left behind? When I was a kid, a teacher came up to me and said, John, at school, he's getting bullied all the time. Would you be his friend? And I tried to be John's friend. I tried for like a day. That kid was so annoying. I couldn't take it. I said, and I was gone. I, couldn't, I needed a team of people to love this guy. He was more than I could handle. And I sh wish I could have done a better job, and I should have. If I was godly, I would have. But then now I've grown up. I've grown up. 
And there's this family at our church who had this kid in their neighborhood who was being left behind. And I was an adult. I'm so much more mature. And as adults, they're so much more mature. And they asked the kid if he'd come to church, and his parents were horrible. They wouldn't drive him anywhere. They wouldn't take him anywhere. They didn't care about him at all. And this kid was getting left behind. He's getting picked on at school. The kid, I think, was demon-possessed. I'm serious. Like, he came to church, and he talked about demons. And he talked to me, and he talked about how the lunch ladies were out to get him. And he was serious. And I remember talking to this kid. He was too much for me to handle, but thankfully he had a team. We had a church. And this family would bring this kid every week, and his parents didn't care. They wanted him out of the house. They didn't like him either. And year after year, we spent with this kid. And it was amazing. It was like a deliverance. He went from being like 12 years old, and like I had concerns for him to being a junior and being like totally normal and comfortable. And he wouldn't come and talk to you about weird demons anymore. He'd just come and talk to you. And he didn't talk about the lunch ladies being out to get him anymore. Because he wasn't worried about it. And so as you're going to look to somebody to love, you can go look to somebody to love because you got need in you. I feel like I need to be a good Christian, so I need to do this, and I need to cross this brownie, and our culture needs, and I saw, would you be my friend? Instead, why don't you look around and see, like, who needs your help? Who has God put in your life which needs our church? Their parents might never come to church. That kid's parents, I met them. They were, I mean, there's... Don't know what to say. But we could bring that kid to church. You can bring a kid to church. Is there a kid in your neighborhood that you can bring to youth group, that you can bring on Sundays? And Jesus says, this is what it looks like to have eternal life. This is what people look like who believe in me, who love me. And do we look like that? And let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, thank you for your love for us. And may we be humble to remember that you cross boundaries to love us. You cross boundaries from being perfect and holy to love us who are unrighteous and sinful. What love that you have. Lord, thank you that you don't cut off, that instead you go too. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for coming to us in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for coming to us with your Holy Spirit that we might be convicted and repent and know you and receive your forgiveness and love and joy. And Lord, we pray that you bless us, that we can be like you. All of us who seek you every Sunday, who pray to you every Sunday, who read your word, that we can be like you and that we can go to people who are in need in our lives. Lord, we just lift these things up to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit work in us and our church, that we can love those who are different than us, that we wouldn't be people who look for loopholes to God's love, but instead that we would look to love other people who are being left out and left behind. And Lord, we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.